My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. The Bonanza continues. Here we are, episode 102 of the Wonder Dome. 102. I'm still kind of tripping out on the three, the three figure, the three figure numbers for the shows. So I'm probably having more fun with that than you are. But nevertheless, here we are, episode 102. And I'm bringing together two guests who know each other quite well, who have worked together in a variety of deep contexts. Kim Lowe, who was on episode 25 of The Dome, Finding Intimacy at the Heart of Conflict. And Gabe Wilson, who was on episode 47 of The Dome, Freedom and Fairness. And Kim and Gabe have worked together uh, in a variety of professional contexts as facilitators, as trainers, as coaches. They were co-writers on the book, Compassionate Conversations, along with Diane Hamilton, on how to speak and listen from the heart. And I was really excited to bring them together for conversation because I personally had never spent time with the two of them together. I'd only had the gift and the privilege of sharing space with each of them one-on-one. The intersection of this conversation, the center, the heart of this conversation is to deepen into the spaces that we invoked in our individual conversations, which is the spaces of healing and learning and growth that are possible when faced with a conflict right now, it's easy to look out on what we might think of as the public commons, which is mainly driven by 24 hour news media and little social media bubbles of highly polarized and insular content. So it's not reality. But it can sure feel like reality is riven with strife and conflict. And it is. It is. We only need look to the unending series of mass shootings here in the States or the global conflicts in places like Ukraine, Syria, Armenia. There is deep, deep conflict at the heart of many of our social structures and institutions. And there are millions, if not billions of people who are sitting with the question of how can we live together more peacefully and more beautifully? And most of us want that peace. The paradox is that we might only be able to find it if we're willing to walk into the fire and sit in the fire of conflict and feel that heat. And discover that in that heat, there might also be warmth and light and possibility for something new. And this conversation with Kim and Gabe is a 
playful excursion into that space. One in which I enjoyed having very much and I'm really excited to share with you. So let's get settled in. (sighs) And hear what Kim and Gabe have for us. Kim, Gabe, welcome back to the Wonder Dome. Good to be back, my friend. Thanks, Sandy. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here with you both. I shared this with Kim recently, Gabe, but um, but maybe I'll say it to both of you now in this space. Uh, when I reach out to people to tell them about this show and and why it might be meaningful for them to join me on the show, and I'm always sort of thinking about who to invite and you know if they come, what it means for them to come, and how to host them and and convene them in a way that's really rich. Uh, I will share other episodes. And I'll say, you know, you, you might want to check out this episode and, uh, and I don't know the exact frequency, but, but both of your episodes are episodes that I, that are on like the short list of shows that I like regularly share with other listeners, other prospective guests to sort of say like, this is kind of going to what's, what might happen if you come hang out with me for an hour or so. So I'm just really pleased and excited and I'm feeling like almost a little giddy and effervescent to have you both together. Totally. Total pleasure to be here together. Yeah. I'm happy that you asked us, Sandy, and I was um, kind of marveling at how this journey, in a way, I look back and it's like, it's just a little snippet of life, but actually it was 2020, I think, that you and I spoke and I was yeah. in California and the fires were raging. And then maybe the next year it was, you spoke to Gabe yeah. and we were, so the book had been published here, I used to say, and we, you know, Gabe and I were moving in our paths and now this opportunity to come back this year and sort of mm. touch base and check in feels like a marvelous opportunity because, you know, yeah, Gabe, I haven't been as swimming as close alongside you. And it will be, um, I'm genuinely curious to find out what emerges. What have we both been like thinking about still alive in our hearts from that time till now? Mm. Thanks, Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Like in a way, uh, I, I get to facilitate, but also just listen in on the meeting of of two friends who have made some really beautiful work together, including this this book that you co-wrote called Compassionate Conversations. And I hope I hope that uh, anyone else who hears this also just kind of gets to to bask in the the pleasure of like when friends meet and connect. <laughs> totally. Mm. Yeah. So the the format for today that I that we've all sort of agreed to play with to see what happens is this idea that actually um, you, you co-wrote this book and it would be really fun to see how you're relating to it now. And the way that we could do that is we could start Kim by having you read an an excerpt that you've chosen Mm -hmm. and let that land in our conversational space. And then Gabe, I'll kick it over to you and to myself to just play with what's there and then back to Kim to sort of, share why she chose it and what's here for her as, as, as she hears us. And then we'll do that one or two more times, uh, giving you Gabe a chance to read and maybe one of you a chance to read again, depending on how we go. Does that sound fun? Yeah. Okay. Sounds great. So Kim, Kim, the, uh, the floor is yours to, to take us in in whatever way you've chosen to today. 
Oh my God. What? Quick little process check. I am noticing. Um, I imagine you can edit this out. Um, yes. Andy, but the, Kim, your video is kind of cutting in and out. It has been opportunistic when it has cut out. But I wonder if we just all just kind of get ahead of that. What do you think? Let's, get, let's get ahead of that. Let's go audio only and see if that helps. Yeah. There was a moment where I thought I had wasn't recording. That's what I thought you were about to I was like, oh, fuck. No. no. <laughs> That's good. That's good. All right. So let's try that. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. And you know, it, Kim, as you read this, again, we can edit all this out. And, and so we'll sort of pick up right with you reading. Uh-huh. That'll be really good data for us. If you get through the reading and there's no glitches, then we'll probably be yeah. able to just, just cruise. Okay. Great. So I'm going to read a little bit from the chapter Becoming Wholehearted, which is actually, actually chapter 18. So in the journey of the book, we're coming towards the end. We're coming towards the core stuff, I think. Our thinking mind is usually binary, highlighting opposites such as black or white and intolerant of ambiguity or shades of gray. Our life is full of contradictions that create difficulties for the mind. But the heart's intelligence tells us that even though there is injury, injustice and oppression, our life is fundamentally worthy. Working with these difficult challenges provides the conditions that allow us to develop the heart's innate intelligence and its ability to hold paradoxes in a way that the mind cannot. The heart's most powerful asset is its ability to love, which means to open to the beautiful part of our human experience, as well as to that which is painful and include them both. The poet Bell Hooks questioned people about what force in their lives had compelled them to make a profound transformation from a will to dominate to a will to be compassionate. They all reported that the transformation occurred as a result of experiences grounded in love. It is love that provides the most transformative power when it comes to addressing our ills and catalyzing our movements against oppression and towards justice and fairness. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Kim. Yeah. Gabe, I'm curious to hear what's, uh, what's alive in you as you hear Kim read that passage from the book. Yeah. Um, hmm. I think the two things that, that stand out right now to the fore is there's the binary mind that Kim mentioned in what she read. And then there's this heart intelligence that can hold paradoxes that this binary mind cannot hold. And I can't even take the perspective of the binary mind and I'm like, a little suspicious of this hard intelligence that Kim's talking about <laughs> just a little bit. Hmm. Um, and so I can feel that texture. Um, and I also just feel, you know, I think that I've had experiences of this heart intelligence that through a sense of grace or through just the merits and the humble merits of the amount of practice that I've been involved in, with Diane and Kim 
in the context of these difficult conversations in Zen practice, you know, on the merit of that training, I also feel like my heart has grown. And I think there are dimensions of myself that I try to look away from and ignore Mm -hmm. that I can embrace more fully now. And the same goes true for people out there in the world. You know, there are some people that even just three years ago, I would have had a, my heart would be closed off to them and I would have labeled them bad and myself good binary mind. Mm. But now mm. there's a little bit more nuance and complexity and uh, you could say a heart intelligence that doesn't idealize myself or others, you know? Mm. So those are some things that, that jump out. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I had this thought, uh, Kim, when you read the line, something like the response to bell hooks inquiry, how did you make this shift from will to dominate towards a will to compassion and, and the shared commonality of every response was an experience grounded in love. And this might almost seem so obvious as to, as to seem inane to say, but it just has never struck me before as it has in this way, in this moment, which is that it is possible, perhaps even likely, despite the fact that every single one of us has the word love in our vocabulary, or at least I was thinking of of the English word love, as one of the most overused words in the English language Uh that many of us have not in fact actually had something like what the people who answered bell hooks question must've been talking about Uh that, 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 that kind of experience for all of our talk of love is tragically rare and perhaps a bit more ineffable than we realize. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like like love is something quite absolute and beyond. And yet we are going to be little human beings communicating to each other, showing symbols, attempting to express ourselves. And, but really, um, I mean, so there's, there's little, I don't know if there are phrases coming up in my mind, but I feel like they're signposts towards what it is. And Gabe might be the reason why one of these ones floats around in me, but it's, we don't know what love is capable of. Like, we don't know yet. Like, let us continue on that journey and be shown. Mm -hmm. Um, And then maybe from another story that I think I read, I think some character is saying, um, like, I'm not here to show you. I'm here to love you. Love will show you. Mm. And I kind of remember, you know, like the lead up to that, but you know what I'm getting at, right? It's like Mm. this greater force and we can be imperfect instruments of it, but our connection with, it's like we know it deeper than the mind can know. And maybe that's why I'm speaking in sentences that to me don't make full sense. (laughs) There's some heart knowing in this. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I wonder, Gabe, if maybe as as we play with that possibility that perhaps in whatever way you feel comfortable, you could speak to the insight you had that there are 
people who even a few years ago, your binary minds would have placed you on the good side and them on the bad side that you feel some opening or spaciousness towards. And yeah, that, that just strikes me as, as, as a potential trailhead towards what Kim just, just articulated with some of these stories. Um, I can't think of a particular moment where, you know, as you're pointing out, I'm good and the other person is bad, but perhaps because I'm coming off of the holiday season, (laughs) there's nothing like going back home and feeling like you're regressing to your adolescent self (laughs) when you're 34 years old with about eight to almost 10 years of solid in-depth human development work. (laughs) And it looks like you haven't done anything, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just, just the shattering of that idealization of going home to the holidays. It's a great practice space from that point of view. Um, So I'll just say that. To answer your question, I think I've just been humbled <laughs> enough times to realize that I'm not the hottest shit around, despite all the human development purportedly that I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing that I would say with respect to love and to the presence, Kim, the person that I've heard that from multiple times is Rob McNamara. Oh, yeah, it's a Rob. Um, And yeah, it's a poignant statement. And when I receive it now, I think about, just the potency of what it is to bring two things into one. Now I'm going to get the terms wrong. I was maybe y'all know, but in physics, when we split the atom, the amount of energy released in that one of the uses, unfortunately, was was the atomic bomb. They did that in splitting an individual atom. They, they realized, and I think the process is called fission. Yeah, it might be fusion. Right. Yeah. yeah, fusion would be the like the elusive uh, possibility of, I think, converging atoms to produce energy and as opposed to splitting an atom to divide it. Precisely. So my understanding, speaking to the scientists that I have in my life, the energy produced when you bring two things into one versus splitting is incredibly higher. Mm. 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 So to use that metaphor, there was like an, an enormously wild astronomical jump in evolution when things went from a a unicellular structure to a multicellular structure. And when we look at that jump, we can kind of almost take this phrase that Kim presenced and, and tell those unicellular organisms, like you have no idea what is possible. When you come together with another unicellular organism, just, just you wait. (laughs) Right. And, you know, fast forward to that, just you wait, we have these multicellular organisms, the three of us having a conversation with each other. That's wild. 
<laughs> across like across sitting hundreds if not thousands of miles away from each other in sort of linear mm-hmm. understanding of space and time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think I take that that <clears throat> invocation of you don't know what's possible if, mm. if we come mm. together. And that's what I guess I interpret love as it's, it's a coming together in one dimension. And the last thing I'll say, just to tie it a little bit more directly to us homo sapiens, there's a book called becoming human by Michael Tomasello that I got into just over the break now. And, and the whole book, it's a, it's a really kind of research science based book and it's, taking the reader through a series of experiments that's basically asking the question, how is the human being really all that different from the great apes that we are descendants from? Like, what's the thing? Cause chimpanzees are figuring puzzles out that are really complex that human beings can do too. Like there, there are a lot of places where we're the same, but how are we different? And without getting into the research and I'm just getting to know it. So it's maybe premature me bringing it up, but what I'm taking away from it is that there's a very particular capacity that human beings have of conjoining our attention. Hmm. And so what happens when we conjoin our attention, you just presenced our internet infrastructure, Andy, that's something that happens when human beings conjoin their attention over long stretches of time, this stuff happens, right? Um, and you could say our attention has been conjoined on technology for forever. And since the industrial revolution, we're getting these dopamine hits of breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough on this exponential curve of technology vis-a-vis our joint attention being on it. Mm. 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 And I'll just and say I, very, yeah, very please. briefly, I'm in, I'm in touch with um, non-technological examples of that. Totally. For whatever reason, I'm in touch with a, a book I read called Mastery, which is by Robert Greene. And he gives all these examples of, of artists and innovators who sort of seemed like to just do, be able, capable of things of, that are superhuman and I, and I might be in touch with this because of where Kim is sitting right now, but one of the examples he gives is, is of Polynesian explorers thousands of years ago who could navigate um, by yeah, dead, totally. by sort of dead reckoning, just like mm. no technology, no compass, just stars and wind and waves and, and had developed an entire language to, to that allowed them essentially to describe the way in which they joined with the ocean to travel across it on what to our, uh, to many of our understandings are these impossibly uh, uh, sort of fragile crafts on, on an impossibly huge expanse of, of wild ocean. And so there's a kind of joining with nature that allows for also these exponential leaps in like joining with nature and also joining of the crew together to work together mm-hmm. that allows for these exponential leaps of possibility that uh, are just border on miraculous um, if they weren't true, <laughs> or maybe they are, they are miraculous and true. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a nice transition and I'll end here. 
and you're referring to the to the wayfinders. At least that's the book that I'm mm-hmm. uh, that comes up for me. But you know, wherever a human being puts their attention and rests it, there are worlds that will be revealed to them. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we put our attention on quote unquote technology in the broadest sense of how we understand technology today, um, computer, internet, lasers, rockets, that kind versus the the technology that feels of like a, a different kind. And I don't want to use the word technology, like embodied knowing mm. um, that these wayfinders have by resting their attention on the stars, on the waves underneath their boat and the wind. And over time, information being revealed mm. vis-a-vis those elements. Mm. Now, I want to make two connections. I'll stop here. In the same way that those wayfinders put their attention on the, the waves under the hull of their boat, over time, let's say that there also have been human beings that have been putting their attention on compassion and have been, in a way, being taught the intelligencies of the heart, right? Vis-a-vis just that inquiry. Mm. Last thing, and this goes back to the joint attention. The joint attention is important in the sense that I think that's how human beings communicate generation to generation, the things that they have learned by resting their attention in certain places. And so there's this awesome opportunity and we're like the the benefactors of several generations of human beings focusing their attention on compassion or on love to use that word um and they're saying you know if you focus your attention by yourself on this some things will happen that will be miraculous now if you focus your attention on love or on compassion together just you wait that's kind of the invitation that I'm feeling uh, in what Kim is presencing. <clears throat> I just wanted to add this joint attention bit to it. Mm. Thanks, Gabe. Mm-hmm. Kim, what are you in touch with right now? Oh, um, gosh. Well, I mean, I love the the analogy of the wayfinders and about that um, ability to na- navigate our lives and create, you know, sound direction for ourselves by really like attuning to the greater nature. Um, sounds kind of esoteric where I'm going like in these words, but I think what our technologies are, are practices and the things that we can utilize so as to cultivate that compassion. And right now I'm just, I'm even thinking about the basic ground rules, the invitation for people to listen well. And there's, I mean, our book is one source, but there's many different sources like where people have really been studying this and practicing this. And what is it like to keep your heart open when you're listening to someone who's espousing a view that, you know, you might find hateful. Um, Instead of a, I don't know if this is the right way to use the word technology, but I'm, I'm really thinking about these practices that can let us be in touch with that greater nature. Um, the, one of the earliest instructions I remember hearing for listening 
was to really listen with one's whole body to even, you know, relax in the belly and let one's feet be planted on the floor and just feel your whole body, feel this, the surface of your skin as you're receiving someone else's view. And it's, um, I found it to be, I have found it to be really powerful. I'm still learning. Like, what is that? What is that profound receptivity that I can bring myself into that will actually change what's possible in an encounter with another person? Um, I learned recently going to the museums and reading books that there were um, big, like, contraptions, you might say, um, like physical held contraptions that wayfinders, that the canoe people would take on the boats. Mm -hmm. So imagine something in front of you that's like a small drum, like a barrel for ale, and imagine that there's holes drilled into it and imagine that there are parts cut away and imagine that you can hold it out in front of you with water in it, which tells you what angle to hold it so that it's not spilling out of these certain holes. And then when you look at it from some aspect, if you can see the star that's on the other side of that hole, you're going the right way. (laughs) It's incredible. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, people devised that because it was so important that the next generation learn this. So, and then I've heard of other things too, where like you're standing on a, in on a, a ground, you know, like the sundial as a basic sort of um, listening to the nature for the instruction for the timing, or um, there were versions of that where things were placed in the circle and it was a way of explaining to the people who'd never been on the sea what it was they would be looking for, or what it was they might perceive when it was the right time to then, you know, change direction and follow a different trade wind or something. And, um, so I guess that what I'm, what's in me is like mystery and awe mm. for, for how these, these ways have been passed down and feeling that, you know, Gabe and I and Diane and writing this book, it's just like, it's a humble offering to that space. I think hoping that others coming generations can continue to build on what we learned mm. about listening. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I love the idea that the book is is a modern expression of that same artifact you described. You know, you've you've tried your best to to build something and shape something and drill the right holes in it and 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 fill it with the right amount of water so that someone else could pick it up and see through it and find their way through. Yeah. Mm. Gabe, I wonder if you feel interested in and called to read the excerpt that you chose to bring from the book, or maybe there's another one emerging as you listen that you want to share, or maybe there's something else here that you'd like to say. Yeah, I'm happy to share a passage from the book, I think. Maybe based on this conversation, I'll just kind of add the framing. I want to read a little bit about shadow in conversation. I think it lends itself well to perhaps, you know, the inquiries in my heart based on this conversation is what, what were to happen if, if we could all collaborate together? 
um, if we could all come together and collaborate as a human species. Again, I can't really quite fathom that. Mm. Like if we just stopped fighting <laughs> <laughs> and, and devoted our attention towards preserving the planet, pulling people out of um, illness, uh, starvation, and so on, like it would be so radical. And so I think with that frame, my question is, you know, what are the things from a uh, developmental point of view or from the point of view of growing ourselves to be vehicles of compassion or of bringing people together? What do we need to, to practice ourselves to make ourselves more trustable vehicles to do those things, to bring people together? So I think shadows is one of them. And so I can read really quickly what shadow is and then read the section here on what it means to own your shadow. Mm. Mm. How, how does that sound? Beautiful. Great. So what is shadow? <clears throat> One of the greatest disruptors of the equilibrium of the ego is the shadow. In Jungian psychology, shadow refers to aspects of the personality that remain out of the light of awareness because we find them unacceptable, shameful, or dark, the opposite of how we like to think of ourselves. In Ken Wilber's usage, the word shadow is any part of ourself that we cannot hold in our first person, quote unquote, I, and is usually projected onto others who are not like, quote unquote, me. How does shadow occur? These disowned parts once belonged fully to our experience. Little kids have no problem being thoroughly themselves. But through social conditioning and other life pressures, some aspects of ourself pose a threat to our self-image. They're too painful, too shameful, or simply too unacceptable to contain. So to maintain equilibrium in the self-sense, the unacceptable shadow material is pushed out of awareness and instead is projected onto others. For example, I'm not angry, you are. Or in the context of groups, we're not racist, they are. <laughs> but of course, shadow traits continue to function in the background, causing confusion, distress, and difficulty for ourselves and others. You can see them at work in the moral crusader who has illicit sex on the weekends, or the politician who, while campaigning against corruption, is busy taking bribes. But we can all catch glimpses of different shadows in ourselves if we dare to look closely enough. Okay, so that's a little riff on, on what shadow is. Mm. And I'll just read this part here on Omic Shadow, which I think will be maybe two minutes at most. Is that okay? Yeah, keep rolling. So owning shadow. In many conversations, because the role of the quote-unquote oppressor is largely rejected and foisted onto others, the conversations themselves will sometimes bear the weight of the shadow in the background. In other words, we're not willing to see ourselves as oppressors, right? We're constantly pointing to people outside of ourselves as the oppressor. It is as though the oppressor is lurking about in the room, 
The dialogues can feel tremendously heavy with an overweening sense of injustice and wrongdoing. There's little room to make mistakes or inhabit nuances, shades of gray, or paradoxes, because there are certain dogmas that must be adhered to. Some conversations that purport to be open are not at all open, because there's almost no room for differing opinions. Understanding how shadow plays out in conversation can be extremely relieving especially in discussions where people want to exchange perspectives and learn from one another. In the context of this kind of group discussion, shadow work could be introduced by simply asking everyone in the conversation if they would be willing to take a few minutes and identify ways in which they have oppressed or injured others. The inquiry can include anything from dominating a younger sibling to breaking a lover's heart, to maligning someone at work, to causing a car accident, to participating in an unjust social system. Engaging our shadow is the simple willingness to identify with the qualities or actions that we ordinarily assign to others, unlike us. Let me see here. This question usually disrupts the way we commonly think of ourselves. And when people have the ego maturity to engage shadow work, it is tremendously energizing. The whole room combusts into enlivened explorations where villains are no longer outside of the room, but are right here and now living among us. And it is everybody, all of us. Suddenly, the foreboding sense of shame and blame gives way to the recognition that everyone is, to some degree, complicit in creating human suffering and is therefore capable of helping to relieve it. Mm. So I'll pause there. Mm. Kim, what's happening for you as, as Gabe brings this in? I, I think, so I'm, I'm imagining the listener right now and I'm imagining hearing this about what shadow is. And I guess I'm feeling like I just want to add some encouragement for the kinds of settings that I think can really help with this, just based on my own personal experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think that being in, I'm going to call it like communities of practice, but groups of thoughtful people where um, someone can see what does it look like to do this work when it's under different personalities and different, you know, circumstances. I think that it's, um, it can somehow, what is it? Well, for one, it's making it more accessible. I know that when I, sort of am by myself and I contemplate my shadows and the parts of me that are most, you know, abhorrent that I just like can't, it like icks me out. It's easy for my ego and myself to become kind of like freakily destabilized, you know? Um, But when I see it being modeled by someone else, or I see them having a moment of insight, or I see how their shadow from my perspective, I can, I can even find it quite um, just human and acceptable that they think that way. And also um, totally right and possible that they could sort of surpass that bind. Um, anyway, this is what I'm like, I'm just saying that being in community and watching others go through it together is sort of ongoing work that we're continually engaged in based on our lives and what comes up, I think it can be really helpful. 
because it's not really just like one event, one really nightmare of the soul kind of event and mm. then we're gone, mm. but it's it's ongoing. And to be able to learn how to carry the, let's say, carry the paddle with actually a sense of humor, <laughs> um, mm. it's it's just really good for us. And I've I've seen others like role models that I look up to. I see how they carry their um, so-called flaws or biases or when they catch themselves in it if they're able to own it and laugh and kind of admit it to the room like instantly I have respect you know and so mm. me that wandering into what will that be for our groups you know Gabe sort of talked about like when the group is carrying a shadow and I think that's um, a lot of really good work is being done now in that area probably as a result of all the tensions that are arising at this time of what does it look like for a group to do this well? How can the power be held consciously? How can it be passed off fluidly? How can how can the group sort of attune to when it might be uh, projecting a villain? And how does it soften and adapt and um, and you know take another look at it? Mm-hmm. I'm reading a, a fiction book right now, and the author is sort of a virtuoso of metaphor. And uh, his name is Max Gladstone. I'm actually going to get a chance to talk to him in a couple of weeks. And he talks about uh, one of the characters in his book talks about sort of the shadow and the urge that the kind of almost heroic and celebrated urge, whether it's explicit or implicit, but you sort of see it show up in many different contexts, maybe the sort of most simplistic or, or and mainstream right now, or like the, the comic book hero who, who sort of defeats evil and, and, and in the process illuminates and the shadows are gone. But, uh, but, the metaphor he uses that is that actually there is no light bright enough to cast out all shadow. An atomic bomb actually, actually paints shadows on the ground where if there's a shadow, the, the radiation blasts, like the only thing left behind is the shadow of the object that was destroyed, even as the object itself is destroyed. And, uh, and I'm just like really in touch with the potency of that metaphor, which is, I think if I'm, if I'm hearing both of you play with this, there's like a way in which in a, a safe, trusting group, it's possible to get in touch with the things about ourselves that we're scared of. Like for instance, a feeling of jealousy or a feeling of, um, hatred or anger or, or a desire to hurt or dominate someone else or, or, or elevate our status over someone else, kind of building up our own ego by putting someone else down, right? All of these very human things that we'd like many of us, or at least I'll speak for myself. I like to imagine I could never do such a thing, but as I get in touch with the parts of me that could do that and have done that, even there's a way in which like, I want to like atomic blast that out of out of my awareness. And instead what I hear you both talking about is, is the sort of really gentle, compassionate, like way that a group could come sit with me and help me be in the presence of those parts of myself and maybe even laugh a bit about them and see that they're not as scary as I think. 
and also see the humanity in them and, and let the shadow kind of be present more. And I wonder how that, how that metaphor and that kind of my understanding of what you're both talking about lands with you. Well, just real quick, I think it's really great for the, the point that by staying with others and going through the process means that as you come out of the other side and you look in their eyes or you get to receive hugs, I think that's innately healing. I think that there's something very important to do with recognition about being able to see each other's humanity that I think actually builds that stamina to keep doing that shadow work. Mm. 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 What do you think, Gabe? I love the metaphor. Yeah, I think the the connection to humanity is just what I would highlight. So I think if you do shadow work, you're basically coming in touch with all of your human conditioning, which we all share. Um, And Diane will often say, the more intimate that I can be with myself, is the more intimate that I can be with others. And so if I'm intimate with what it feels like to um, have rage, when it comes up in a conversation or in someone in the room and they're full of rage, I could easily just dismiss them as like, they're out of control, they're a lunatic, they're whatever. But if I'm in touch with that part of myself that could be angry or or rageful, then maybe I could, I would take a beat perhaps and say, when I've been rageful, it's because something's been violated Mm. in me. Mm. And so that whole bit is reframed as, oh, like, what is it that they care about that they're protecting? Just my whole demeanor towards them might soften and change. I might ask them to dial down the intensity because I really want to receive them and my nervous system is getting activated because there's a lot of energy. But, you know, maybe I I want to stay with you and and really hear you. So I feel like in doing the shadow work, we are humanizing ourselves. And therefore, as Kim's pointing out, there's going to be a natural predisposition to humanize other people just by virtue of your ability to receive them as they are. Um, and, and for me, that makes, and I'm tying this to compassionate conversations, that makes us as facilitators, coaches, or just human beings in general, better stewards of, of human connection, uh, better stewards of creating connection that can bridge differences. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's what I would add. And I think that's just why I, would, I brought up the shadow bit in respect to what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, if we were to maybe use some of your earlier language, there's a way in which allowing ourselves to join with our own shadow and join others in our shared kind of human humanness, that that's part of the joining you described where our power gets amplified as opposed to the attempt to repress the shadow is kind of an effort to divide, to separate. And, and that, that can be so draining. And so, and it produces something, but it's a kind of separation, a kind of violence. And I just hear you speaking towards that possibility of joining here as you say all of that. Yeah, exactly. There's a part of me that, uh, that uh, feels 
is like, no, don't ask this question. This is silly. It's too clever. It's uh, or, or it's the, the context is there's not enough context here for this to be possible. But uh, so now that I've named some of my doubts and some of the, the voices in my head going like, no, no, this is a stupid question. Like I'm wondering actually, is there some way in which this group of three people are creating or casting or embodying like what's the shadow of us right now? Probably several, but the first one that comes to mind is the part of ourselves that don't want to bridge with people and could give a shit about compassionate conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Yeah. My inner oppressor, my tyrant, my dick. Yeah. Mm. Someone asked me recently, and I, I don't think it was supposed to be like a challenge or anything, but they were like, who is this book for? Who is it not for? Or like, who did you not write this for? And it was, it was kind of interesting because I guess I did admit to myself, well, for folks who just don't want to learn, <laughs> like folks who, you know, folks who don't want to hear that, that, that they could work through it. I, I encounter people in different ways who will kind of um, kind of post back to me in some way. Well, what if the other person's not doing the work? Like as if, what if I'm the one who's doing all this work to build compassion and the other person's just not there to catch it? What then? And I, I guess what's in shadow is like in me is the one who just doesn't want to catch and doesn't want to play and thinks mm. all of this is like kind of useless. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And as you both say that, I'm aware maybe that like part of the shadow here that's present for me are, are a couple agendas I have, like an agenda around somehow holding a sort of somewhat false stance of, of being above the fray even as I reach out to the two of you and say like, we're going to talk about compassionate conversations because, you know, in parentheses, if everyone just did this, mm-hmm. well, we'd be really good. And the people who don't want to do this, like parentheses, like you're, something's wrong with you. You're the problem. You know, like I'm aware now of that, like as you presence the shadow side of folks who might hear this and be like, this is the lamest shit I have ever listened to. <laughs> but, uh-huh. Like then I get to go, and you're the problem, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't get it. <laughs> so I think to, to that to, to follow up on your question and our responses. So if I were to kind of do the shadow work, I would let's let I'll just own right now the part of like I. I'm going to try to touch him with the part that doesn't want to have compassionate conversations and doesn't want to bridge build. Yeah. And if I feel into that part, there, there are a couple of things that come to mind immediately. I, I feel my superiority or at least a sense of superiority. <laughs> notice how I, I, I changed that. I noticed my superiority and then I, Changed into, I noticed my sense of. So let me just own it fully and say, I feel superior and I am superior mm. to people who haven't done this work. Mm. And I judge them for that. 
I think they're less than, I think they're less sophisticated. Um, and in a way, I don't want to waste my time. And I just want to find more people like myself. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we could probably get further along faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's, there's a superiority there. Um, and within that superiority, there's like an us and them, you know, mm. there mm. is a sense that I'm, I'm more judgmental and less compassionate about those that are quote unquote, not as developed, whatever that means. And it's kind of a character flaw. It's them. It's not their circumstances, the opportunities or whatever. Um, and then I think the follow-up question for those listening for us here is, well, what's right? Like what, what's intelligent about this shadow? Like what's worthwhile in here? Like if I'm a, if I'm actually a bridge builder, why is it worthwhile me looking at this straight on and owning it? Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And Do you have a sense come, of, oh, yeah. 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 The first thing that comes to mind is, Oh, it's present. <laughs> so as a facilitator, I can pay attention to, I actually might harbor judgment and I have to pay attention to that dimension of myself, of those people that don't put in the work. Like that actually just might be in, in my psyche and I have to check for that because I want to be neutral. I want to be in support of everybody such that we can maybe bridge. That's one thing. Two, by knowing this dimension of myself, I can be more in touch with what it feels like in somebody else's body. Mm-hmm. I can feel that there's zero desire, or even there's like not even the thought of taking the other person's point of view. And I'm, I'm actually protecting something I care about. So if I, if I can feel that in myself, I could probably more readily join with someone and say, look, you're obviously protecting something really sacred to you that might pertain to your group identity. Talk to me about that. What is that? What are you protecting? You know, what are you guarding against? What are you preserving? Cause it might, I, I think it might be very well important. Mm-hmm. And then once we name that, perhaps in just naming it and say like, Hey, is everyone for this value that this person is standing for? Typically, um, in the rooms that I facilitated, everyone's like, I'm all about family values, of course, you know, and then it'll relax the person and maybe their ethnocentric group identification will, will also relax. And oftentimes they'll just turn on a dime and say, well, would you, would you be interested in what they have to say? And they're like, yeah, totally. <laughs> After they feel like the thing that they're protecting has been heard and also affirmed in the space in a way that structure can relax. Mm. Mm. perhaps my ability to see that in the first place is predicated on me being able to contact those dimensions of myself mm. Mm. You know? mm. Kim what do you think um, I was just wondering Gabe can I just ask a question yeah. you um, Gabe what's the biggest challenge you're facing right now in your work with people on this edge of transformation of if they're becoming. Yeah, I think, you know, to use the frame of shadow, I think as a facilitator, I just presence being neutral. 
And so there's the part that I think gets a little pushed out of my own awareness is like, what are actually the things that I stand for? Yeah. And well, Kim, you were, we were together at the freedom and fairness workshop where basically everything was going to hell and the room wasn't coming together. And on the third day, I kind of just broke down and said, look, <laughs> um, I'm taking a stand for being for each other. And if you're about that, I welcome you. And if you're not, I'll ask you to leave, you know, or just, just part. Um, I feel like, I'm the- like they, they, oh my gosh, gave the day before that happened. I have this memory of you just at one point sitting down on the floor when everyone was in their seats and you were just like tossing around the mic and, um, this is just like a side story because it was so, it was heart touching to me mm-hmm. that you could hold your seat as a facilitator, even then with like, this is an experiment guys. This mm-hmm. is me actually trying my shots. And when you could laugh mm-hmm. at yourself when you mm-hmm. were feeling like you were falling over and the next morning you showed up and boom, like your full heart and you showed vulnerability. And I think the person who in my memory was giving you the most challenge I'm pretty sure he looked at you and said, Gabe, we are so proud of you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that was awesome. Mm. So, mm. I story there. I don't know if you're going to say something else. Yeah, so I think it's just that. That's where my edge is. I think that um, I'm kind of encountering another part or like I, I feel like I'm, I'm at another threshold where I'm coming upon taking another stand like that. Mm. And I'm just afraid to do it. And I don't really know how to do it, but it's basically taking a stand for compassionate conversations. But I noticed that in the spaces that I'm in right now, whenever I take that stand, definitely some people move towards me and I feel community there, but I also lose people when I take that stand. And I think it's, um, it's in conflict with my desire for us all to kind of be together in our differences, you know? Um, I'm noticing that in the stand of taking, I want to take around compassion. I'm not losing people. I'm not able to bridge. Um, in a way, I'm creating my own us and them dynamic. Um, and I don't know how, how to quite hold that in my, in my body and mind. You know, it feels like a betrayal of the very thing I'm trying to do. So that's where my greatest challenge is, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, Gabe, just to quickly say, like you, you really beautifully articulated the power of connecting to this part of you that feels judgment and, you know, doesn't want to build a bridge. And, uh, and then you sort of described how that could be really useful to connect, to actually build the bridge by being aware of the way you don't want to build a bridge. You might from that be able to build a bridge that up until that moment seemed unbridgeable like some divide that's somehow seems unbridgeable. And then I just want to like honor and name that you're, I also hear you sitting, there's like another part of you maybe, or where you're sitting with something around, like there are, there are times, even when I am trying what feels like my fullest and wholeheartedness to build a bridge, people turn away from me. And I don't know what to do about that. So there's also Mm -hmm. here present is the part of you that, that is, maybe almost desperate or at least very much longing to build bridges and feels the failure of that when they, when they aren't built 
Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that um, to add to that, I'm I'm in a way um, the the trade off that I think I'm feeling right now is in, in my work, and maybe this is trying to connect it back to shadow. Maybe that'll reveal itself, but in my commitment to build bridges, I'm, I'm having to make compromises around what I see as possible. That more visioning or leaderful dimension. Mm. I'm making compromises there. Cause if I were to go full out one, I would probably challenge my own self because like, who are you to make such an audacious vision? But I would, um, I think, consequently put a demand on myself and others that uh, would make some people say no, because I don't want that kind of demand. That I'm, that's too mm. much. Mm. So I think um, in saying that, that's the edge. It's like, oh, oh, here's the shadow. I'm worried about putting that demand on others. But the, I think the also the truth is like I, I don't want to put that demand on myself because if I paint this vision, I'm going to have to start embodying it. Mm. I'm going to have any integrity, and so yeah, actually, I think that's it. Mm. There's there's mm. a demand on myself that I'm going to create if I articulate and step into the vision of what's possible or what I think is possible for us. Yeah, and I don't know if I'm super willing to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll actually have to, I'll actually have to rise up and, and align myself with this, this yeah. otherwise fantastical possibility that I could just easily reject and keep doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kim, what about you? What's your edge right now? What do you, where are you working at, at the edge of what's possible in your work? Um, for me, Right now, I think, um, well, I notice when I hear Gabe speak and, and I can feel the power of his vision and of who, how he wants to express and noticing where that yeah bumps up against things. And I, I think for myself in the last year or two, um, there's been, I've experienced kind of a stripping away of things, Andy. When you and I spoke, I know fire was one of the metaphors that mm-hmm. that we we kind of circled around. And I actually feel like a lot has been burnt away from how I was previously doing things. Just to say, I've been through kind of a personal transformation in these years, um, and now the I'm kind of thinking of myself as actually taking a bit of a different posture in regard to like my work than I have done before. And for some reason, the the image that's coming to mind is that of a feather. And if you, and I've been gathering feathers lately, I don't know why they just keep coming on my path. And I'm like, okay, that's special. And if you look closely at a feather, it's so rare that you'll see both sides of it actually doing exactly the same thing, but much more often than not, one side of the feather will be, you know, taking some kind of shape and it's for the I assume like this beautiful, like the miracle of this bird producing all of these feathers in a slightly different gesture in a slightly different shape or length that's going to make the whole bird take flight. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I guess what I see now is that, so putting that into more like concrete terms is that my work might not be for everybody. Um, and I'm actually really accepting of that now. Um, there was a time when I was like bullying myself, even in the writing of the book, I would bully myself. Like, how can this include people who might've criticized my viewpoint in the past? Mm -hmm. For example, at university, people who didn't share my ideological view or some, I remember that there were folks when I was at law school, super back in the day where like people didn't share my view and in writing the book on some level, I wanted to be able to reach them and now I just feel like that's really okay. That's not as much my concern right now, but rather I'm just focusing on being the most, um, I don't know what the word is, but like discovering what is the shape of my own feather, I suppose, so that the people for whom my work is for, I can go really deep and feel fully truthful to what it is that I want to express. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that that sparks for me this recognition that the shape of your of your feather, whatever it might be taking, is in response to the other feathers around you. Yeah, yeah, totally. If you're trying to like shape your feather, if you're on the you know the left wing and you're trying to shape your feather to a, a group of feathers on the right wing, it's it's just it will actually make every it would make the bird harder to fly. Yeah. And, you know, there's work that I I don't, um, I used to mediate more and I used to work more closely with, with peace builders around the world. Um, and I was much closer with like the intensity of actually standing as a practitioner in the conflict. Um, and at that time I was working in New York. So even though it's sort of community level mediation cases, I felt all of their significance for the wider social structure that we were in and the social conditions that we were in. And, and nowadays I'm, I'm not as much of a direct practitioner, shall we say, and doing more, more coaching with people, helping them, helping people sort of break down like what's happening in their story and hopefully coaching them in such a way that they can meet their encounter with more fullness and better skills. But I'm kind of like, I'm saying that's up to you, you know, Mm. that's Mm. up to you to take that forward now. And um, yeah, so I'm also like, I'm I'm kind of enjoying where my own personal evolution is going with this. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So if you two can believe it, we've arrived, we're like, we've landed right on our official time boundary. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I feel really full and really, um, joyful right now, even as, even as we've spent some time working with, with some of the parts of ourselves in this work that can sometimes feel a little edgy or a little bit scary or, or things that we might want to push away. But I'm really grateful that the experience I'm having in this conversation is, is that we've done some work to join the uh, what otherwise might be sort of paradoxical like hey how can we be loving and connective and attentive and and flow and ride the waves and traverse and go on these great beautiful journeys and how can we also slow down and address our differences and our divides and the anger and the rage and 
those just feel, even though there's a way in which the binary minds might see those as two opposites, like they feel really joined for me right now in this space. And I want to say thank you for that. Yeah. And, uh, and by way of closing, I've invited each of you to bring uh, a blessing or a benediction, some poem or excerpts or quotes could be from the book or could be from anywhere, could be yours or someone else's. And uh, I think we should close with that if that feels all right. Yeah, perfect. Um, Gabe, why don't uh, why don't you share yours and then Kim yours, and, and we'll we'll be exiting after that. Sounds good. So this is actually from the book. This is uh, the quote we have top of the last chapter in it together. It's called the chapter. This quote is attributed to the Talmud. Do not be daunted by the insurmountability of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You're not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Gabe. Kim, whenever you're ready. Yeah, so this is a, a Celtic prayer of approach. I honor your gods. I drink at your well. I bring an undefended heart to our meeting place. I have no cherished outcomes. I will not negotiate by withholding, and I am not subject to disappointment. Hmm. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you, Kim. Thank you both for being here and for sharing the work you created together with Diane in that book, Compassionate Conversations, and for sharing so wholeheartedly and generously of your own learning and your edges in this space today. This has been really special for me. Thank, thank you. you yeah, mm. thanks for having us. It's a mm. real pleasure. Mm. And um, I just want to say if, um, if anyone wants to reach out and continue this conversation, I'm really open to being contacted because I'm yeah, I just believe in this work and I believe in all of our connections and relationships. So mm. thank you for this space to share. Yeah. Where, if people want to do that, where should they go, Kim? Um, website, KimberlyLow.com. Most likely send me a little note through there or um, I have an email address up there too. Brilliant. And Gabe, how about you? Well, I just have to say, whoever contacts Kim, if you're listening... Ask him to invite me because I'd love to be a fan of Kim's world. And by the way, I've set it up so that it'll also get auto forwarded to me and I'll be there too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, my friend, freedomandfairness.co is, is the place to find me. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you both. And thanks to anyone and everyone who hears this. May you all go well and go bravely. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, 
while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others. Consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever. <laughs>